and welcome to CIA Files, True Stories of U.S. Intelligence, News Edition. I got the news for you. I am Topher M. Ford. Brandon's got the news for you. He's Brandon. Uh, hello, Brandon. Hey, I'm like Minnie Pearl. I'm just proud to be here. Well said. Um, yeah, so we're taking a look at the stuff that's going on. Is there a war brewing a big old war. <laughs> I, I, I think yes. Well, shit, let's get into it. Uh, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Joe Biden popped up the other day. On uh, Today, we're recording this on Sunday, February 20th. On the 18th, uh, Joe Biden went on the TV and told everyone that he's convinced Putin has decided to invade Ukraine, but he leaves the door open for diplomacy. And then there's been a lot of uh, what looks like, you know, pre-war shuffling going on around there. Brandon, you want to, like, drop a little update? Yeah, I mean, like, um, well, some of their exercises, you know, things like building pontoon bridges over rivers that are very, very close to Ukraine, the practicality of that. Um, And some of the stuff going on in the breakaway region, like the local uh, like separatists saying, oh, we're evacuating civilians. Now, some of that, I mean, kind of how I read some of this is Putin and the separatists are, you know, are kind of like, we're serious. We're, we're really serious about, you know, like our demands and what we want. And we're going to count to three. One, two, and then Biden's not blinking. Biden's like, all right, well, I guess we're about to have a war then. And it's like two, two and a half, two, two and three quarters. But they've been counting, essentially. They so <laughs> I, I I think it's too late for Putin to back down. Um, and that's kind of his legacy, which in some ways, I mean, in a Machiavellian sense. Uh, he's kind of overplayed his hand. Had he not sought re-election, he, he would have gone out on top. Like, ah, you know, I, mean, I saved Russia from the, you know, the Yeltsin years. We've got our glory back. You know, we did. We successfully kept our guy in Syria. And uh, we took Ossetia from Georgia. Uh, we got the Crimea. Now, all right, peace out, home slice. You know, I'm going out on top. But instead... I think he, he's trying to go for go for gold or, or whatever it is. And I think at the minimum, they're going to roll into the breakaway regions because that's what they did in Ossetia and that's what they did in Crimea and they weren't stopped. And so why would they not again? I mean, all the troops are there. They've been making this big buildup. They're counting to three. Um, so I expect at the minimum, they're going to do that. Uh, it might go farther, you know, like they may try to take the whole shebang. I'm not as convinced of that, but I'm pretty sure at minimum they're going to going to take that breakaway region. All right. Well, let's let's talk about that for a second. The breakaway region. I'm assuming you're talking about like uh, Donbass, where Ukraine is still having issues with separatists and the fighting. Yeah, that's yeah, been that's- going on there. You're talking about how, you know, they're kind of playing chicken or seeing if their demands will get met because people are afraid of them are going to, you know, fall over themselves to keep uh, war from happening. What are 
Putin's, you know, like what, what was their wish list? Oh, well, they, they want to have Ukraine not allowed into NATO. I mean, that's right. one of the big things. And um, uh, pretty much they, they essentially want to be able to veto anything Ukraine does. It's an attack on their sovereignty. And yeah, I think there's some stuff about missile defense and, but at the end of the day, their their line, the short version is they have lots of security concerns that are not being met. And until those are met, then they're going to threaten Ukraine. <laughs> you know, right. They're going to ensure that they don't join the um, they don't join NATO specifically. Um, right. Yeah, taking that breakaway region effectively does that because NATO's not going to accept someone until their borders are already secure. It's kind of like right. a, uh, uh, NATO is an insurance policy, and that would be one big pre-existing condition. So right. <laughs> like we're, not, we're not touching that. Okay, so when people are talking about this, uh, I hear talk of buffer zones for, you know, like the, Russia's security is like the big thing. Why does Russia feel threatened? Are they worried that uh, at some point NATO's going to like roll in and unseat him and take over? It seems as if um, that um, Putin specifically has that fear. Um, whether or not it's true, whether or not he truly feels that way, or whether or not uh, NATO is a threat is, um, I guess, debatable. I mean, being an American, I don't really feel that NATO's a threat. However, the U.S. did invade Iraq under dubious pretext. Um, We were involved in removing Gaddafi from power, and that was NATO. (laughs) You know, NATO got... And uh, Gaddafi was not a direct threat or even an indirect threat to NATO at that point. But... um, you know, it was NATO aligned nations saying, all right, well, we're going to help get rid of Gaddafi. So what Putin has seen is that the West is willing to engage in warfare for to, to get rid of autocrats. And Putin's like, well, I'm an autocrat <laughs> or autocratish. <laughs> you know, I don't, uh, you know, the. Uh, and, you know, it's uh, Gaddafi. He gave up his um, a lot of his weapons early, and he gets removed. So, you know, it's like stay strong or you're going to get taken out. And, you know, so, I mean, the, the, his fears are not completely unjustified. I guess that makes sense, but, especially I mean, considering, you know, he comes from that that age of paranoia. Well, and when the the Soviet Union collapsed, NATO went in and started accepting these Baltic states and Eastern European states, or really, uh, they'd probably better be called Central European states, and um, putting, you know, troops and missiles and things there. Uh, so, you know, we did. We did push, push in our weapons to surround them. Uh, and our story is that's for our own defense, and... And their defense, I mean, I, I definitely don't blame the Baltic states. I mean, if I were Latvian or Lithuanian and we broke away from the Soviet Union, the first thing you know, would be saying, okay, we got we to gotta get a friend that's going to help defend us because throughout history, Russia's gobbled us up. And if we want to stay 
and dependent, well, we got to find a way to, to not be gobbled up. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I drove through the, was it the Sasha to boot? That was kind of funny. It's, um, Lithuania, man, now I can't remember if it was Lithuania, Latvia or Estonia. My mind now is telling me Estonia, my memory. I'd have to look it up. I think, I think my wife even posted a video of it, but it's this little bitty, like a couple of acres of land that goes through Russia. And um, so you're at one part of, I guess I think it's Estonia and you're driving along and you see this like sign in English and Russian and I think German. And it's like, you know, you're about to enter the Russian Federation. Do not stop your car. And um, so, you know, we drove through and it's like, oh, yeah, we went through Russia without a visa. Hardy, har, har. Um, but there are two there are two sections and we didn't know that. But we got through and um, oh, yeah, it's gravel road. So it's like paved road. And then when you get to <laughs> Russia, it's gravel road. And um, then it got to be paved road again. And so we're like, oh, yay. Well, we got through Russia. That was so much fun. Yay. We're driving along. And then we see the sign again. And I stopped to read it. And a soldier comes out of the bushes and starts waving at me, you know, like, keep going, keep going. Wow. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, they're watching this thing. (laughs) So drive on through. So we mentioned earlier some scuttling about some, you know, pre-war moving around. Um, there's been shelling in Donbass. Oh yeah. It's gone up like exponentially. I mean, that's the thing too. We're seeing a lot more like just, you know, ceasefire violations and everybody's pointing fingers. You violated the ceasefire more than I did. And you violated the ceasefire more than I did. But the, the key factor being ceasefires are being violated. Right. Yes, I saw that uh, in Reuters this morning that uh, Russia's deployed apparently up to 190,000 troops around Ukraine. I've also seen them saying uh, Russia has 50% of its uh, ground units on Ukraine's border. But the, it's it's a military training exercise involving take, half of yeah. their units all in a big U around Ukraine. <laughs> It's necessary for their defense, you see. It's an exercise. It reminds me, my favorite game, video game, is uh, Civilization V. I love that game. And I've poured tens of thousands of hours into it. And it's like, if you decide you're going to attack one of the other civilizations, you start amassing troops near their border, they will stop and ask you, hey, you know, your troops are making my people kind of nervous. Uh, what's up? And then you get two uh, options to respond. You can either say, you can either say, you're right to worry and declare war. But that gives you uh, a disadvantage because you've declared war, but you don't get to move your troops until after they get to respond to it. Or you can say, oh no, my troops are merely passing through the region. You have no reason to worry. And then if you attack after you said that, then you get uh, dinged for diplomacy, you know, for being a liar. Uh, And it it definitely we're at that situation now where Ukraine is like, you know, you're making all those troops are making us nervous. And Putin definitely (laughs) went with the, oh, no, they're just passing through the area. They just all of them (laughs) doing some trading. My entire like half of my entire 
army is just passing through the area. <laughs> There's a little restaurant <laughs> near the border that they all like to go to. So, well, you've you've also got like um, Belarus. There's a very strong pro-democracy movement there. Oh and, no! Uh, when it was getting close to taking down Lushenko, um, you know, Putin sent in troops. It was funny because they're kind of like frenemies, and. Uh, Lushenko and Putin, you know, they, they, I think they understand each other, but Lushenko knows that Putin's trying to gobble him up, but he's willing to make a deal with that devil in exchange for, you know, staying in charge and the country not becoming democratic. Uh, but with that in mind and Putin's perspective, well, this would be just, you know, oh, my goodness, if Belarus became democratic and joined the, the you know, Western Bloc and Ukraine. Oh, they're just, oh, what about poor little Russia? What are we going to do? And it's like, oh, couldn't you guys join too? <laughs> you know, don't, don't you want to you join our special club? And it's like, no, Russia will not be assimilated. Of course, we, we mentioned this before, um, Nord Stream 2. So everyone involved told, is telling Putin, if you invade, then we're nixing Nord Stream 2. Um, how much do you think that would end up being a big deal to him? Uh, big enough to stop him from? I mean, apparently not. Well, if he wins the war, it won't matter. <laughs> He'll have, he would have direct access to. Uh, to yeah, um, <laughs> anyway, if he would control the pipelines in Ukraine. So <laughs> if he wins the war, so there you go. Yeah. I guess that, that makes sense. I wouldn't have to invest in building it then. It's like, oh, why am I going to build this underwater pipeline if I can control the land pipelines that already exist? Cost-benefit analysis. Huh, how much does the war cost? How much does Wind Nord Stream 2 cost to complete? Plus, uh, you think Putin maybe, you know, he's not going to be in office for, he can't be in office for super longer than now because, you know, he's... I mean, he's not anciently old, but he's fairly old. And, uh, yeah, those those dictators live forever, man. What was it Castro was like ninety yeah. something, and he looked like a ghoul. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah, like but, I mean, yeah, the other Kim Jong Un or something. Like they, they 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 don't die. I think it's a secret to life. I need to become like the, if I want to live forever, become the dictator of some nation. Yeah, you live forever uh, until as long you, as you don't get assassinated. I was say <laughs> you live forever until you don't. Yeah, well, as long, yeah, as long as you don't get assassinated or have the Americans take you out. So uh, now we understand why he's so afraid. His plan for immortality <laughs> or to live past 90 is contingent upon the Americans not taking him out. I mean, he's planning on running again because they did a, a new constitution. Right, so this would be his first. He can run again. This would be his first, um, well, I was going to say illegitimate or unconstitutional run, but he changed the constitution, so it'd be his first uh, election with a little asterisk next to it. Well, that was the same thing that um, Cocalero guy did that was kind of shady. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know why I keep um, forgetting his name, but he was the one, the, the left-wing guy in Bolivia, and, you know, and he kind of got taken out in a coup. He was like, the CIA did it. The CIA did it. And it's like, well, yeah, they might have for the lithium, but he, he was, he engaged in some shadiness there. They rewrote the constitution. And then he's like, okay, well I can run again because technically it's a new country. <laughs> and I was like, oh, 
Evo Morales, that's him, Evo Morales. <laughs> so it's a very common trick. Right. And Putin's like, oh, that's pretty sweet. Actually, I'm not sure who came up with it first. I would have to. <laughs> it's like, that's a sweet it's idea. It's a reverse FDR. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then in the midst of all this, uh, the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, is leaving or he left, it was this weekend, um, he left Kiev for the Munich Security Conference, and a lot of the Western, his, you know, allies and defenders are kind of worried, like, maybe you shouldn't leave right now. Maybe you shouldn't go to a whole <laughs> yeah. other country. Maybe you should stay and, you know, sort of be in charge. And he's like, uh, I think I'm going to go on a... I got this conference. I already told him. I told him I would be there. And I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can I can see both sides of that because they're like, well, if you leave, that's going to be a really opportune time for um, for the invasion. So you're kind of might be helping make it happen, and you're not going to be there to control things. But you know, we got Zoom. You can say, work from home. I mean. <laughs> It's like, <laughs> he can control it. He from can there. he can but, run uh, the defenses from the you know the hotel pool. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it actually may be better because then it's like okay, well he's not in danger of being captured, you know, unless it's like truly covert operation thing. Uh, there was you know this this fellow, uh, he was a comedian. And he had some show. I think it was like the the premise was he was a school teacher that becomes president, and or maybe he was, oh, was a that Dave that becomes president. But um, none of the pro- well, maybe there was that movie Dave. But, oh, that's what uh, I was saying. I, I thought you were talking remember. about a movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no. The 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 Ukrainian president. This was a series that he created. Um, like how how he got famous is he's a comedian and he made this like sitcom where a regular Joe becomes president and then he runs for president and wins, <laughs> you know, so it's life imitating art. Uh, the, the, well, the, the, you know, people are like, Oh, well, you know, we needed a politician and now we've got this um, comedian and, uh, but you know, I don't know. I think it might be better. They have that guy because a politician, I believe would have already sold the country out. They would have already made some kind of agreement with Putin, you know, like, okay, well, we'll promise not to join NATO and, you know, we'll hold, we'll go ahead and surrender this region or, you know, whatever they would have done. Um, so I don't know, maybe the world would be better with a politician because they would might avoid the, avoid a war. But as far as sticking up for the Ukrainian people, I kind of think the guy might be doing the right thing by not backing down. And I'm pretty sure a politician would have weaseled something out. Yeah. I had this personal experience back in 2016 through 2020 where this TV star was put in charge of a lot of, you know, general stuff in my life. <laughs> and I didn't like that. And that's kind of soured me on the thought of, you know, uh, giving TV stars important political roles. But I can only speak from my <laughs> I, own limited experience. So, yeah, that's that's anecdotal evidence. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people people vary, and um, 
their abilities and temperaments. And I wouldn't say because someone is an entertainer that I, I wouldn't support them. I wouldn't say that that alone. I wouldn't have said that. I want to see what else is going on uh, with them. <laughs> and like, what kind of entertainer are they? And so right now with Ukraine and Russia, we're just, everyone's kind of uh, waiting for something to happen. Two and a half. Yeah. Two and three quarters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that is kind of, kind of where we're at, but yeah, I, I think they're going to have a lot of trouble backing down. Right on. Well, let's, uh, let's shift our view over to the other great American threat or threat to America. The other great threat to America, China, uh, China, <laughs> China, um, they're having some issues, some economic issues, and a lot of this, um, I am not an economics person at all. It doesn't make sense to me. I'm, I have a hard time managing oh. my own finances. But the, chi- I, the Chinese government screwed me um, in the stock market. Didi it was it's kind of like Uber. When I was living in China, I used Didi all the time, and... Um, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, this is good. Then, you know, moved to Kazakhstan, and Didi's kind of started here. It's not as big as Yandex, which is, like, Russian-based, but nonetheless, it's like, okay, this company's growing. They entered the the stock market in the U.S., and I bought up a bunch, like, just, uh, with, I didn't get an IPO, but, like, a week or two after they came out, and, you know, everything's kind of going great for, like, three or four days or so that the, the Chinese government comes down and, like, um, smacks them really hard and now is telling them they need to delist and my stock value has just dropped. Uh, and I'm, well, that sounds it sounds like you're just one of a lot of people who are feeling the same thing because that's the big that's the trend that's happening in China right now that they they are cracking down on tech companies and financial institutions and um the economics economists eco, economist economist the economists i talk good for professional <laughs> times um keep saying that it's just more and more restrictions making it harder and harder for tech companies and you know, giant corporations to turn profit. And again, like I said, I'm not an economist, but that, that like, I don't care. <laughs> I, maybe right. I should, you know, it's it, maybe it's like microplastics and I should care. I just don't have the energy to. They're, I think they're kind of doing a lighter version of what Putin did when he came to power. It was like um, when he first kind of got the presidency, he got, I can't remember which one it was, but one or two of the oligarchs um, captured and then tried on camera in a cage. I think it was a nice, clean-looking cage, but nonetheless, it was a cage. And that was all for like... It, it was kind of like if the Mexican president had managed to capture El Chapo, like, and but instead of him escaping and giggling all the way to his hideout um, after a, a couple of weeks, 
he's put on trial on camera in a cage. And um, it was just kind of, that would have been kind of the equivalent. You got one of these like multi-billionaires, possibly trillionaire, and Putin managed to capture him and publicly, humili- publicly humiliate him. And then all the other oligarchs start calling. It's like, we just want you to know that we really support (laughs) your system and want to know what we can do to help. And we are willing to cooperate in any meaningful way. Because the oligarchs like kind of handpicked Putin to put him in power because they thought that he would be a pushover, right? I'm not exactly positive about that, but I do know part of his strategy was to um, encourage people to underestimate him. Yeah. And as an old KGB guy, he would have known all the all the oligarchs and, and mobsters. Right. So that would, I mean, it's, it makes sense that that would have been a game for him to play. But I think this, what China's doing is kind of a lighter version of that. Some of these... Um, you know, tech billionaires and millionaires, they, you know, they, they start getting some ideas about speaking and having opinions. They and, try to use their uh, uh, commerce influence to affect the government. Uh, but the party's having none of it. They're like, you got to, you need to stay in line and stay loyal to the party or the party's decisions and uh, go, go about making money. Just be quiet about the runnings of things. And I'm, sh- I'm sure they probably gave told them, like, if you have concerns about the way we're doing stuff, this is how you contact whom you contact. Here's your, you get a, you, you can <laughs> you drop a slip in the comment box <laughs> and the janitor yeah. will see. I mean, China could, well, you know, China could be amazingly uh, technocratic and kind of interesting in that sense, like local governments and, will do things like have suggestions, not like a literal box, but like online, make your suggestions. And, you know, as long as you don't post on there, you guys all suck. They'll take it seriously. I mean, it, it does have some technocratic elements that helps it function. Uh, like they, they can sometimes respond to crises and problems better than the the americans often do you know it's like oh well we've got congestion in the city and you know all right what do we do and they, you know they're a little bit their responses are sometimes a little bit more um efficient than what we might see in the u.s because there isn't a whole lot of debating i was gonna it. say they don't <laughs> so, it's not made of two parties who are desperately trying to keep the other party from doing anything yeah um yeah but at the same time, they often don't like to admit their problems. But I don't know that the U.S. is that oh, much different, well, you know, like yeah, the drug I was war. Say, <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, being in America and seeing how much influence these, you know, major corporations have over the government and that they basically own our government, you know, as an outsider looking to China. I'm like, is it necessarily that bad for them to put that mo- more restrictions on? I, I think that was part of it, too. Um, you know, it's like, well, you, you have with the incredibly wealthy a couple of different elements they can influence. 
um, you know, like just the social media itself. Um, China's got that part locked down, <laughs> you know, like, you know, <laughs> the social media is monitored and controlled. But then you have the behind the scenes wealth and influence, you know, incredibly, incredibly rich people and how they can influence um, elected officials. Well, there it's, you know, the party members and, and in some respects elected officials because they, they do have like a, a Congress, a People's Congress. And, um, you know, the, the party will present to them five-year plans that they believe are, are good. And, you know, before it's officially law, it has to be approved by the people who were elected. <laughs> but have these incredibly wealthy people and, yeah, they're going to have an influence on politics. And, yeah, they're kind of like, uh, I mean, politics is this pursuit for power. The people who are part of this sort of, um, they call them the, the little princes. Their, parent, their grandparents were in the, the revolution. And it's like, well, they want to make sure that they stay in power and not the nouveau riche or the riche who have returned. Right. One, you know, like one big downside to this is I keep seeing issues with uh, inflation rising in China, which again, you look at America. Well, yeah. It's everywhere now. Yeah. So I, you know, it's we don't get too much into our personal opinions. Uh, I want to state as far because China is like here in America, the Chinese government is a. I want to say divisive, although I think in general. Like when you look through Western mainstream media, it's all a little uh, not hostile toward China, but it is, you know, trepidatious when they talk about China. Right. They're, they're not, you know, they're very hesitant to give China any credit for anything good. Uh, there's always this undercurrent of tension when you read stories about China, even in Reuters or CNN. Um, or well, they'll get blocked. I mean, there are a number of news agencies that are blocked for saying something negative uh, about well, China. Well, but no, what, I'm, so what I mean, though, is they have to be. They're like, they're not going to talk about China super positively. And I, I get what you're saying right, right. Um, about worried about getting blocked, but they're just not. There's very little, if any, praise ever for China. Um, it, not, and I'm not saying that they deserve a lot of praise. I'm saying I don't know. But there's definitely a tone yeah. in mainstream media when they talk about China. Well, I think it's hard because if you do, if you are positive about China or anything they do, then you can alienate your readers because, you know, people... A lot of the readers don't want to hear nice things. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like, a reflection um, of the general ideas of China here in America that people, I think, just from re all the different stories I read and comments that I read and the general discourse that I hear on social media is that people in America and in the West kind of look on China as this dystopian hellscape you know, where everything you do is closely monitored and you're going to lose social credit points if you 
drop a piece of trash <laughs> on the floor uh, or on the ground um and there are just people watching every single person's every move and and yeah. i'm like no, no it's not it's, it's not yeah, like that's that, what i'm no. saying i don't <laughs> think that, yeah. i think i yeah it's obviously not like that you could just know that without even having been there uh, but people really love to push that notion i think part of it is that china fulfills this sort of uh cultural niche that we have of a dystopian sci-fi government and i'm like i mean not to sympathize with um a non-democratic government but like their biggest thing is they've got so many people (laughs) to oversee (laughs) and if you know they're probably looking at america right now and going you know but for the grace of god because of how split and divided we are well, they they do they they do mention that like that's kind of their big thing is like oh look at the West and how disorganized it is and how it can't handle these problems and there that's going to collapse any minute and it's the same sort of thing that you saw with the rise of fascism in World War II where the collapse of the democratic states and the depression or seeming to collapse gave rise to authoritarianism or like look democracy's failed it doesn't work so look. Well, these guys already exist as a authoritarian state, and they're looking out at other groups failing, and like, oh, look at them fail. We're we're doing what's right. Yeah, <laughs> we got we got we got the system, and I mean, their lives are arguably better than they were twenty, thirty years ago. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, uh, um, speaking of sci-fi, I, this was in Newsweek uh, Friday. China wants to build moon base as part of five-year plan to become space power. So the the space race is heating up again. No, that was a, that was a literal episode of the from the first season of Space Force. Oh, it was. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I haven't watched that show. I, it, that's what, it's about a moon. China setting up a moon base. Well, that occurs. Oh, I see. It's not about that. It's just something that occurs. So, oh, life imitating art again. Maybe they maybe they saw that um, that Korean series that they had a moon base and there's this lunar water stuff and uh, it did really well. I watched it when I was stuck in the U.S., but now I can't remember its name. You get stuck in the U.S. Yeah. and you watch yeah. Korean shows. well you know it was on netflix and it was rated as like the number one and i just followed the herd (laughs) like oh everybody else this is good let me watch this at at this point when it comes like we're in like a golden age of media entertainment while everything else is going to shit you know (laughs) you're like the oceans are rising and the weather is getting crazy and governments are collapsing and war is on the brink there's so much good stuff to watch. So I guess reality has to no. like up the ante to compete with Netflix. Oh, misery feeds art because it's escape. There's, there's an escapism to yeah. it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't bet those gladiator fights and, and the circuses right there before the, the, the fall of Rome. I bet those things were, were awesome. I bet the after parties, man, those were something else. <laughs> Well, what about the moon base? 
They're making a moon base. Is that it? I mean, yeah, that was. I was <laughs> <laughs> just making a moon base. <laughs> like, why, why, why are they making a moon base? Or are they? <laughs> well, so <laughs> well, I guess it's low gravity, so they can escape <laughs> to Mars. They can beat um, Elon Musk to Mars. Oh man, that'd be so funny if um, China starts trolling um, Elon Musk. Oh. <laughs> it's just like Richard Branson's. <laughs> you're messing with each other, China. Ah. Oh. Oh, they're going to put a car in space too, and beat him to the moon. And oh. all right, so going back to Civ Five, um, you know, like you have as you progress through the game, one of the things that you have to do is uh, direct your technology, um, and you know, like choose what areas you're going to research, and then that you know, once you research those, that gives you new options of things you can do and one of the things that you can do in the game is win a science victory you can win like a culture victory a religion or a domination um, but you can win a science victory by being the first person to launch your space program and i gotta say just from a detached point of view if i was like really pushing for a science victory I would probably choose an autocratic government over a, a trio of uh, dipshit billionaires. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, you'll you'll end up making some libertarians angry because people, oh, the free market, the free market, it'll do it better, the free market. It's like, well, it's really just how much money you throw at it. <laughs> that's at the end of the right. day. That's kind of what it is. <laughs> yeah. Throw a lot of money at it. It's like people yeah, who worship Elon used. Musk. I'm like, have you listened to the man talk? Have you seen his Twitter feed? It's <laughs> yeah. he is a a beneficiary of circumstance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I wish I was born owning a diamond mine. I love. There's a story <laughs> about him um, when he was a teenager coming to America with his brother uh, against his father's wishes. And they bring with them just like a giant emerald. And that was like their plan for money. <laughs> it was just a giant <laughs> emerald. They went to New York to sell it. I think that, I mean, they did sell it, but what kind of fucking shit is that? You know, like go take some money out of mom's purse. Oh, there's, there's no cash in here, but there is this <laughs> giant unprocessed giant. emerald. All right, get that. Let's get, let's go. It sounds like something from like the 17th century. Yeah. Um, some royals third <laughs> child. It's like, I don't want to join the church or the military. Let me take this jewel and go to the colonies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, there's that uh, China controversy at the Olympics. Yes. Um, they, one thing that from my experience in East Asia that I noticed is they are sensitive when it comes to like culture and what would be called a cultural appropriation. And uh, yeah, so the, this thing was, it was a Chinese person wearing a hanbok, which is a traditional Korean dress. And uh, when, when I was in China, the school that I was um, teaching at had lots of Koreans. And so when you had like national day, uh, the 
Koreans all, all wore hanboks, well, you know, which is kind of cute. You know, it's like if a, you know, as an American, it's like, well, I guess I'll just wear blue jeans and, you know, cowboy hat or, <laughs> you know, maybe I can pull out a kilt and claim you know, my Scottish heritage or something. I don't know. But um, the Chinese are saying, well, we have Koreans in China. It's one of our, it's one of our national minorities. And so it is Chinese. And I mean, I kind of understand both sides of it, you know, where it's like, well, yeah, I mean, the the Korea, ethnic Koreans in China are no less Chinese just because they're ethnic Koreans. You know, it's okay. That's, you know, that would be, you know, things kind of get adapted and stuff. But I also understand the South Koreans would be like... Come on, you did that. Right, just you to, very obviously did that yeah. just because you could say you could do it. Yeah. <laughs> it vaguely reminds me of like white people with dreadlocks and going, no Vikings had dreadlocks too. Right. <laughs> like, dude, you're, you're wearing a Rastafarian hat and you stink of weed. You're not doing that because the Vikings did it. Yeah, that's that's a fair enough, fair enough metaphor. Yeah, they give. I think um, what they call the uh, the oceans too. You know, oh, it's it's not the the south. Oh God, I think it's the there's the Sea of Japan, but in Korea they call it something else, like South Asia Sea or something. I can't I can't remember. I mean, um, but if you call it South China Sea, they get very. Excuse me, the the Sea of Japan, they get really upset, and it's like, ah, oh, well, yeah, okay, I'll try not to do that here. So, does um, all of this, like, what's the historical background of this? Because I'm, I, I'm thinking, it seems like just from what I've been studying about uh, the history of the era, that it it generally plays back to like pre World War Two, and maybe even pre World War One era, where. Uh, China was generally weak. Japan was uh, trying to be a colonizer, and I, they were succeeding. <laughs> there was no trying to it. <laughs> they, they were succeeding at colonizing. Uh, yeah, the, a lot. Um, a lot of it. Well, Japan's invaded um, Korea a couple times, and um, historically and it did not go over very well for the Koreans or the Japanese uh, for that matter and uh, Korea had kind of largely been under the thumb of China for a long time but uh, that kind of their relationship was um, different because uh, Korea was independent but not independent depending on what what time period and so you you still have a like some Chinese have the attitude that Korea really is just kind of part of China that's not really China, but it is, but it isn't. It's cu- and culturally, though, is Korea closer to China or Japan? I will not answer that question because I do not want to inspire hate. <laughs> okay, that, that <laughs> like, tells a lot. That's very yeah, telling that, in and of itself. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. Um, and that that ma- and that tracks, <laughs> given you know, like yeah. uh, Korea's Korea has Korean culture. Okay. Koreans' culture is Korea's. Okay. I'll, I'll take that. Uh, so there's this like a dragon boat festival, and the Koreans do it, and it was um, 
part of uh, UNESCO. It's like, oh, this is a UNESCO heritage thing. And China got pretty mad about it because they're like, no, the Dragon Boat Festival is Chinese. And it, it did originate in China. Um, but the Koreans are like, well, we've adopted this cultural element into you know, to our lives. And so it's part of our culture. That, and we've been doing this for hundreds of years. That was probably, years, I'm so guessing, like forced on them at some point historically. Not not necessarily. There was like cultural diffusion. I mean, that would be like saying, um, you know, like, oh, Mardi Gras has been forced, was forced oh. on New Orleans. Or, <laughs> I bet there's some know, people or, in New Orleans who feel yeah. like Mardi Gras is forced on them. <laughs> Yeah, Bur- burritos have been forced on the on the on American culture, <laughs> you know, or something. And, uh, it's like no, it's just a fusion. Or, you know, it, part of like the Confucian tradition, and Korea is very Confucian. Uh, okay, and they weren't Confucian at gun or sword point or you know anything like that. It was just oh, this is a way of being filial piety. It seems pretty yeah. good. And then Buddhism came in and. So they, you know, they absorbed that cultural element. I mean, China was like the cool country. And, you know, just like kind of like U.S., if people imitate Hollywood and wherever you go, like the music, then the English get it and kind of change it a little bit because, yeah. you know, or stuff. But uh, in many ways, uh, you know, China had this huge, huge influence on the, the region historically. Yeah. Well, because there's so many people, you know, you got historically it was heavily populated. They had lots of scholars, lots of innovations, lots of ideas. And, you know, I mean, Buddhism came from India, but it, it kind of went through China to get to Japan and Korea. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't know that much about um, the history around that part of the world until uh, I guess my first exposure to it was a couple of years ago listening to Dan Carlin's hardcore history about uh, basically it was a, you know, anyone who's a Dan Carlin fan already knows what I'm talking about, but he, you know, he did a, he's been doing a a series on Japan uh, in world war two, but before he got there, he went way back uh, a few hundred years to discuss Japan's history leading up to their participation in World War II. And before that, I didn't know any Japanese history before the war. And I grew up, um, you know, in the 80s and in the 90s, or Japan has always been presented as uh, friends to the U.S., uh, kind of docile, um, technologically advanced, but... Uh, We only got, like, you know, especially in the 80s and the 90s, we only got, like, the nicest parts of Japanese culture. Um, You know, ninjas and samurais and stuff. (laughs) And, you know, nice Uh, electronics. Which has, you know, been exaggerated and gone through a cultural filter. Yeah, exactly. But then I learned about Japan's history leading up to World War II, and I was like, whoa, what a bunch of bastards. Those guys (laughs) are awful. Well, they learn from the best. Yeah, well, that's I mean, that and that's was... how Dan Carlin posts it as uh, Japan started to uh, see the Western countries colonizing, and they were like, hey, we want to do that too. Um, but they were kind of late to the game, and, you know, so they took out most of their colony envy on China. 
And that's my basic yeah, understanding. Um, I'm, I'm not a historian, but yeah, yeah. Well, and they saw it as, um, I mean, for them, World War II and colonization was about survival. And I don't know that they were at that point in history necessarily wrong, or at least their fears were justified. I mean, all the all these Asian countries are being colonized, and they they were one of the few that managed to say, oh, I mean, they had the, the samurai did a, uh, a revolt against themselves to reinstall an emperor as an actual power so their government would be more like the Europeans so they'd have a better chance of fighting them. Yeah, that does and, make sense I mean, that's because... kind of an amazing... Yeah, that know, does make sense because the, yeah, the, the West was like, if you're not white, we're killing you and taking your stuff. And if you are white, we still might kill you and take your stuff. Uh, I mean, the Meiji Restoration, uh, I mean, like Japan had that long history of having like an emperor had the same royal, royal family forever. And but the emperor would go in and out of having any power. And, you know, throughout the shogunate, it was a military dictatorship. And the emperor was more of like um, a figurehead. I think technically they had to stamp things, but um they, you know, went to religious ceremonies. I mean, they stayed busy, but like the mayor of a small power. town. Yeah, it's like you get the key to the city. But um, yeah, the the shogunate, the samurai class were like, you know, our way of life. If we keep this up, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna mess up. But then Tom Cruise was inspired <laughs> by them, and he helped some of them. Some of them resist modernization and. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> they, <laughs> that, that's kind of what that that movie was was about. Some of the, the samurai, last samurai like, oh, is a white man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the Meiji they within twenty years they went from being you know completely feudal agricultural to you know like catching up with with England and stuff with the, how much railroads they had. But then they're like, well, we need oil to have a modern economy, but the Dutch have all the oil in um, Southeast Asia and, you know, with Borneo and Indonesia and um, uh, Brunei was under the thumb of the British. And uh, so they were like, well, if the Western powers, if they want, they can just cut us off. So we better start colonizing and they start colonizing and then the Western powers start cutting them off. So they kind of created their own problem. Right. Because... I don't know. I, it's like you don't know what would have happened had they tried to just be friendly. But having said that, it's like sympathy for the for the Japanese expansion, but it's still invasion of those other people. Right. Until, you know, it's like I understand why they became kind of expansionist, but it's still not right for the people being expanded upon. Right. Um, I will say. If you have not heard of Dan Carlin's hardcore history, highly recommend. And he has, uh, that is, if you have the attention span for it, it is just one man talking about history for. Are you sending our listeners elsewhere? I mean, what? <laughs> you probably, that, once you get caught up with CIA files, you can listen to hardcore history. Uh, do be warned, it is like. So I'm I'm speaking specifically about his series called Supernova in the East, which is his breakdown of you know the Pacific side of World War II. 
Uh, and the first episode is four and a half hours. And it's just him talking for four and a half hours. He does a great job. Oh. It's very interesting uh, and entertaining. But only if you can handle that. I've been around some other people who were like, are we really going to listen to this one guy talk for four hours? I guess not. Um, but yeah, any other news stories, Brandon? I think that's it. Cool. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of other well, news stories, but that's all I had it in to be to talk about. Say, we've been talking for an hour, and I'm, <laughs> I'm ready. Not that I don't like talking, but I need some coffee and maybe some breakfast. Um, of course, you know, hit us on the socials, facebook.com uh, slash CIA files at CIA files podcast on the Twitters and the Instagrams and CIAfiles.net. It's the website. Brandon, what's the our uh, our new stuff? All right. Buymeacoffee.com backslash CIA files. That's for money. And you can give us some money. If you want to. Uh, Times to are tough. Get, You're not obligated. Yeah, I don't know. And to get swag, I have to pause for a second. I always mess up this. CIAfiles.threadless.com. Okay. Oh, go to go to there. Oh, I see. And sample the I goods. see what you see. <laughs> yeah, go there. Buy um you can get a buy a t-shirt. Buy a mug. Buy a baby bodysuit. Buy a French buy a terry hoodie. hoodie. You can buy a Sherpa blanket or a fleece blanket or a pillow. And um, we're working on some. Oh, a face mask. We're working on some uh, new stuff. We'll have a new episode out soon of, you know, CIA files proper. Uh, we're still continuing to explore uh, the Cambridge Five and kind of how that played into the U.S. paranoia about the red threat. Um, and then we got some plans beyond yeah, I that. I mean, even your rich British socialites are communists. What are you going to do? Right. Anywho, take care of yourselves oh. for now and uh, come back and listen to us again later when we talk more thanks for listening all right over and out